0: Tim Keller in his book Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering suggests that when you're in the middle of a season of suffering, you need to do at least two things. First, to be involved in what he calls self-communion, to understand what's going on inside of your heart, and secondly, to be involved in disciplined thinking. So know your heart and think correctly. Here's what he says. We must be disciplined in our thinking. You must meditate on the truth and gain the perspective that comes from remembering all God has done for you and is going to do. You should also do self-communion. This is both listening to your heart and also reasoning and talking to your heart. It means saying, why are you downcast, O my soul? Forget not his benefits, his salvation. This is not forcing yourself to feel in a certain way, but rather directing your thoughts until your heart, sooner or later, is engaged. Much of the thinking... And self-communing that we must do has to do with Christian hope. Heaven and the resurrection and the future perfect world are particularly important to meditate on if you're dealing with death, your own or someone else's, but it is crucial in all suffering. What is Keller driving at? You know what he's doing? He's expressing something that I have found to be practically helpful and yet at times difficult to grab a hold of when it comes to my own suffering or the suffering of others. He's pointing to the importance of our thinking and our theology in the midst of our suffering, regardless of whether or not that suffering is innocent or whether or not that suffering is deserved. In other words, what you believe about God, what you think about him and about yourself and about the world becomes very clear and tested in the midst of suffering. As well, what you believe about God can serve to create hope when at times it seems as though there is none. Let me put it this way to you. This is the central thought for today's sermon. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. You might want to write that down, not because it's so good, but because that's all I'm going to (laughs) say all morning. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. How do you survive or even spiritually thrive in the midst of suffering? What are the thoughts that you should have as you walk through a season where it just feels like no matter where you turn, things are falling apart? What theological truths should anchor your thinking when your life feels like a wasteland? And then how do you fight every day, sometimes hour by hour, in order to interpret life through a biblical lens? You see, these questions are not theoretical or academic, they're personal. Because when suffering or hardship or judgment comes, these questions, in one way or another, become the part of what it means to live in the real world. Pain of any kind, whether it's because of your own fault or not because of your own fault, Pain causes questions, really important questions to be asked, and it tests what you really believe. And that is why suffering is both traumatic and clarifying at the same time. Suffering shows who you really are. It shows what you really believe. It shows what you really believe about God, and it tests all of that at very deep levels. And that is why suffering is hard, but it's not bad. Now lamentations, or the category of laments, are one of the most theologically rich and helpful things that we do in the midst of suffering. Because suffering is one of the most theologically informed moments of our lives. What you believe about God, about yourself, about the world will become clear in the midst of suffering and a lament helps to do two things. It helps both to give voice to the pain that you feel as you cry out to God and secondly, as you cry out to him, it also anchors your heart in truths that you believe. That's why lament is so helpful. You pour out your heart and you anchor your heart in the same moment. And that's what this book does. Now, Lamentations chapter 3 is probably, in verse 22, the most familiar verse in the entire book. In fact, for many of you, you've known no other verse in Lamentations prior to this study other than Lamentations 3.22, in large part because of the wonderful hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and thank God for hymns and songs and choruses that help us to root our minds and hearts in the Word. That verse, 22, says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Now if you think of that hymn, great is thy faithfulness, usually that song is sung in a reflective way as we think back on what God has done. It's meant to be a hymn of of gratitude, all that I ever have needed, your hand hath provided. The idea of looking back, I can see your hand of faithfulness, and while that is wonderful and true, that's not the context in Lamentations 3. On the contrary, Jeremiah is looking at a smoldering city, a destroyed nation, a pagan nation has come and sacked the people of God, and as he looks at the city in its utter destruction, it's then that he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's then that he says, his mercies never come to an end. The beautiful, gutsy thing that he says is when it looks as though God's mercies have come to an end, when it looks as though his steadfast love has indeed ceased, that's when he loads up Lamentations 3.22 and says, no, despite the leveling of the city of Jerusalem, God is still on his throne. Despite the destruction of the people of God, his mercies never come to an end. His faithfulness is still great. So what Jeremiah is doing He's not just reflecting his the pain of his heart. No, 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 no. He's not just reflecting. He's actually pushing his heart towards what he knows to be true, despite what he sees with his eyes. So get that. He is pushing his heart towards what he knows to be true, despite what he sees with his eyes. And for some of you, that's the one thing I hope happens for you today, because something bad has happened in your life recently, and when you look at it through your eyes and through your frame of reference, it looks like a wasteland. It looks like devastation, and in the midst of that, I want you to be able to rehearse the truth that you know, so hope will rise again, that despite what you see or despite what you feel, despite what you think, God's mercies are still new every day. Now we come to the summit of Lamentations, Lamentations chapter three. Everything has been building in the book to this point, and unlike some books that reach their climax at the end, Lamentations reaches its climax in the middle. Chapters four and five will return to the devastating scene of Jerusalem, to the lament, but it will have a different tone to it. The third chapter is different in its structure than chapters one and two. Chapters one and two, if you were here last couple weeks, you'll remember 22 verses because of 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. First letter of every verse is the subsequent letter in that Hebrew alphabet. Chapter three is different. Instead of it being every single verse, now it's three verses in a row have the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's why there's 66 verses in this chapter. So the idea, instead of the poem being A, B, C, D, Now it's A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 D, D, D. The idea is this thing is picking up pace. We're climbing to the summit. The intensity is growing because the climax of the book is right in front of us. There's a unique flow to this poem. Verses 21 to 33 serve as the theological center of the book and the theological center of this chapter. And then what precedes it and what follows it set the context for some incredible truths about who God is. Now you need to know that there are two very different perspectives on the hardship that has befallen the people of God. In the first 20 verses, it's very clear that Jeremiah is focused on what God has done and how hard it's been, and then Really, in verses 34 to the end, there's a change, a change of attitude, a change of focus. Something happens, there's a pivot in here. Let me me show you this. Look at verse 18. Put your finger on verse 18, and then put your finger on verse 58. Here's the contrast. Verse 18, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. In other words, he's like, it's over. There's no hope. And then verse 58. Verse 58. You have taken up my cause, O Lord, you have redeemed my life. Well, that's different. (laughs) Pretty big switch between verse 18 and verse 58. In fact, chapter three, verses one to 20, we, we see how struggling he is with God's actions. Look at just verses one to five. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand. Again and again, the whole day long, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. And then verse six, he has made me dwell in darkness like the dead long ago. So, For Jeremiah, the judgment of God here has become personal and overwhelming, and the effect is that God feels like his adversary from chapter two, now he feels like his adversary even more so, because it's even extremely personal, and the effect is that according to verse 17, he has no peace, according to verse 18, there's no hope, and according to verse 20, the grief that he experiences is relentless. Verse 20, he says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. He has reached the bottom. So I got good news for you. If you came to church today, if you got up and you're like, I got nothing. Like you came today almost like a a person who's there physically but just spiritually. You're out to lunch, I got news for you. Verse 20, verse 20 is for you. If you're at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, I want you to know God can meet you there. He's been there, and verse twenty is for you. And then the perspective changes. Look at verse 38, same chapter, just 20 verses later. He says, is it not from the mouth of the most high that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to the God of heaven. That's a different tone. And then verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. That's a very different tone in the first 20 verses. So, What changed? What's the difference between the first half of this chapter and the second half half of the chapter? I think it's verse 21. Verse 21 is a game changer in this lament. It's, you might think of it like a theological pivot point. And and my prayer for some of you today who are kind of in that bottom season is that today would be the beginning of a pivot for you? Some of you who are here today, you don't have a relationship with Christ at all. You don't know what would happen to you if you died in this moment. And I hope that today becomes a pivot point where you once were lost, now you're found. You once were blind, now you see. Verse 21 says this, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. That word, but, very important word. It indicates a very significant turning. The phrase to call to mind uses a Hebrew word that means to return or to remember. And when he says call to mind, it doesn't just mean intellectual proudness or intellectual ability. No, he's calling to at the very center of who he is. That word means the the heart or the essence of one's being. In other words, what's happening in verse 21 is he is rehearsing what he really believes. And this is what suffering does. When you make the pivot, in the midst of the darkest of the darkest of the dark moments, at some point you need to make a pivot and say, but, 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 this I call to mind. I'm going to rehearse what I know to be true. I'm going to rehearse what I know I believe, which is why the New Living Translation translates this with a little bit of risk. It says this, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The circumstances of life have a narrative to them. There's a narrative underneath What's happening in our lives, and we can begin to believe that narrative, that the destruction of Jerusalem communicated a narrative, but that that narrative, though, was not the entire story. And so Jeremiah calls to mind, and therefore he says he has hope. When we started this series, I invited a number of you to think about what have you stopped praying about because you have no longer placed your hope in God. Some of you have started praying again, and part of the risk of praying for something that you don't see the evident answer to your prayer right away, part of the risk of that is you're taking the risk of hoping. You're daring to hope, which means you can be disappointed again if you're going to hold God hostage to answering your prayer just the way that you want. This word hope, it's only the second time that it's used in the book of Lamentations. It's the first time that it's used in a positive way here. So what's happening is there's nothing about these circumstances in and of themselves that would create optimism, and yet what Jeremiah does is he calls to mind what will create hope for him. So hope springs from truth rehearsed. In a moment we're going to dig into exactly what he started to rehearse again but just for just this first step that I want you to take with me is this I want you to recognize that hope does not come from a change of circumstances alone Lamentations is leading us towards this very important and practical step that when life becomes difficult or challenging It shows us that there is a hope that's available that is over and above circumstances. So you can live in a bad marriage. You can keep praying for your prodigal children. You can keep dealing with financial difficulties. You can keep taking the body blow of what people say about you. You can live with just that nagging, difficulty that's going on in your life. And although that scenario or situation may never change, the reality is you can rehearse the truths that you know, that you believe, and therefore you can have hope. Because hope comes from what you know to be true despite what the circumstances around you tell you. Listen to me. You live through suffering by what you believe not by what you see or what you feel. And I'm not saying that what you see or what you feel isn't significant. Oh, it is significant, but it is isn't ultimate. So therefore, we lament by faith, not by sight. And that is why lament is inherently Christian. It mourns the thing that has happened but it anchors our grief in the bedrock of God's character and in the promise of future restoration. So verse 21 is the pivot. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So if you're here today and you're suffering because of your own sin or because of the sin of somebody else or because of just the brokenness that's in the world, I want you to know that there is great hope available to you even in the midst of this sort of relentless battery of difficulty that's coming your way or calamity after calamity or after, they said that again, again, and again, and again. You can still call to mind what you know to be true about God, and you can fight for hope today by anchoring your life on what you know about God and what he is like, and for some of you, that is a fight that you'll need to embrace, not just today, but much more often than what you would want to. That fight isn't easy, is it? I found myself before, when the narrative of my own mind gets off and I begin to think wrong thoughts or begin to assess life based on what I see or I feel, I have to find myself reorienting or pivoting my mind and heart, and sometimes I, I feel a little bit psychotic. Walking through life, I'm like, no, no. Sometimes I even say it out loud, I get a little nervous when people hear me saying it, you know? Walking through Myers, no, you know? It just, it's, <laughs> trying to reorient my, because it's so real. It's like I got someone talking in my ear over here telling me this wrong narrative, and I know it's not true. And I don't know if it's the devil, my flesh, or just what it is, but I hear this little voice in my head going, God doesn't love you. He's not going to take care of you. He's abandoned you. You're all by yourself. There's no way all this 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 could happen to you and God could care for you. And I, no, that isn't true. And I find that sometimes I go to bed exhausted because all day long I fought for the right biblical narrative. Some of you are here today. And last night you went to bed and you're like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And yet you showed up, and I'm here to tell you God's word says you can fight because you can call this to mind, and therefore you can have hope. It may be here here today, and you're suffering, and you're not a follower of Jesus. It may be, friend, that God is using the pain in your life to awaken you to the fact that there's no firm footing in your life. It may be that God's going to use the circumstances in your life, the difficulties that have happened, in order to bring you here to hear a particular message about what it means for you to become a follower of Jesus. Because, frankly, you can't understand what it means to endure suffering and pain unless you know what the cause of suffering and pain really is, that being sin in the world, and what the ultimate solution is, that being Christ. And my hope today is that you'll come and put your faith in Christ so that your life will not only make sense, but you'll deal with the ultimate problem, namely your sin that is dogging you. Verse 21 is beautiful because it calls to mind important theological truths. In effect, what this text is telling us is that it's possible to lead your heart and your head toward hope. So for some of you, that's a, that could be a game changer because you honestly think that based upon what you see and based upon what you feel, that that's all that there is, that those things, that creates your reality. And the fact of the matter is, there's another reality underneath that reality, namely the word of God, which should inform your life and could provide the hope by rehearsing the truth of what you believe. So we are called to preach to our hearts, to interpret the pain, to interpret judgment through the lens of God's character and his ultimate mercy because hope springs when the truth about God is rehearsed. Now, let me give you the four truths connected to Lamentations chapter 3 four heart-changing truths. One of the reasons you need to know your Bible and one of the reasons you need to listen when the Bible is taught, regardless of where it is and when it is, is so that you have an arsenal to be able to use in order to help your heart and mind pivot. So if you grew up in a Christian home and your parents got you up every Sunday and dragged you to church, and you heard sermons, even if they were bad sermons, you ought to thank God. You should go to bed tonight and say, God, thank you for bad sermons. And hopefully that doesn't count about today. But if you're a child or a teenager and your parents make you go to church and hang around, you ought to be thankful. You ought to tell your parents, I'm buying you lunch today because um, with little money you have. You ought to buy them lunch just because your parents have fought enough of you to put you in the hearing of God's word. Because listen, every single person, I don't care how old you are, you are going to need what I'm about to tell you at some point in time in your life. Because there are things that are going to happen to you that you're going to translate through your eyes and through your heart that says, God has forgotten about me, when the Bible says, no, he hasn't. You interpret things through a lens that says, this is a waste of my time. And the reality is the Bible says, no, it's not. I've, I've run out of God's mercy. No, you haven't. Or I don't see the point of this. No, there's a point. Or God is mean. No, He's not. He's good. So number one, four heart-changing truths. First, God's mercy never ends. Verse 22. The steadfast love. Oh, it's the Hebrew word hesed. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Other translations render this word as loving kindness, or great love, or Faithful love, ESV translates it as steadfast love, trying to capture the depth of the meaning of this Hebrew word, which essentially is God's covenant love for his people. And this covenant love is rooted not in his people or their worthiness, but this love is rooted in the essence of the very character of God. The word shows up in Exodus 34 after Israel blew it with the golden calf. And God tells them that he will renew his covenant with them. Why? Not because that they were such a killer, wonderful, awesome group of people. But rather because Exodus 34, 6 says, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God will renew his covenant with them because he is abounding in love. In Deuteronomy 30, God tells his people that even after they sin, that God will still have compassion on them and he will forgive them when they turn to him and he will love them and care for them. Why? Because that's the way that he is. So understand something, that the ultimate hope of God's people is not the ability of God's people to keep God's commandments. The ultimate hope of God's people is in God's ability to be God. Verse 23 says, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. And so he's not saying that they're new like, they're, like they've never existed. He means that with each new day, we see evident display of God's grace and that there is a possibility of renewal and repentance. Repentance. So if you went to bed last night, and you were like, I can't do this anymore, it's over, Like my life's done, and you woke up this morning, you gotta gotta realize that when you woke up, it was a mercy and a grace to you. Some of you went to bed last night cursing God's name because of what is going on in your life, and yet he still sustained you, and you woke up the next morning, and the beautiful thing is his mercy is new because you're alive. The problem is, is that some of you didn't have that thought. You just woke up and acted like you deserved to have a heart that's beating, a brain that's firing. Psalm 73 says, my heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Picking up the theme in verse 24 says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. What does that mean? It means that when God strips you of everything that you have and all you have is him, you have enough. And part of the beauty of suffering is you learn you can live on God and God alone. Like you don't need what other people think of you. It just matters what God thinks of you. You don't need other people's affirmation. You just need God's affirmation. You don't, your finances are controlled by your boss or the economy. God's the one who controls the cattle on a thousand hills. When you learn God is your portion, you learn the beautiful secret of what it means to be a follower of him in the midst of all kinds of circumstances. So what happens is that suffering and hardship shows us that there is a floor to everything. And that floor, the name of that floor, is mercy and grace. So your sin or the world or the devil are not able to penetrate the floor of the mercy of God's hesed love. So in the midst of judgment or pain, we remind ourselves there is a floor, and that floor is God's mercy. His faithfulness is greater than my faithlessness. His forgiveness is greater than my trespass, and his mercy is greater than what we Deserve And therefore, our hope in the midst of judgment or our hope in the midst of suffering is not that circumstances may change, but that there is a merciful God who rules over it all. God's mercy never ends. That's the first one. Here's the second one. It is this, that waiting is not a waste. Verse 25. It says... The Lord is good to those who wait for him. What you need to know is that in the Hebrew, verse 25, 26, and 27 all start with the word good. So it, it, you could read it as good is the Lord to those who wait for him. And good it is that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Good it is for a young man to bear the yoke in his youth. There's something obviously good here. What is it? What's good is waiting on the Lord and placing our hope in Him. We don't wait well, do we? My goodness. We didn't wait well fifteen years ago. We really do not wait well now. I mean, I feel this at so many levels. I expect answers very quickly. I expect expect resolutions to questions. I mean any of you remember dial-up remember that you'd actually have to dial a number and then wait to hear this awful sound you're like yeah and then you wait and wait and the browser spins now if that happens we're, we're calling somebody and expecting to get somebody right away on the phone because I'm not going to wait for this anymore. You give, go to the drive-thru and go to some fast food place. You're expecting them to be served immediately and quickly. You, you go to a party and you want to know, hey, who won the, I don't know, Super Bowl 15 years ago? Well, it used to be you'd walk away from a party and no one would know the answer to that. Now they just pull out their phone and let me check, right? And so they, just, they, they look. So you never have to wonder about information. It's always right there in front of you, right? But do you know that waiting is one of the best seasons where the Lord teaches us things? I don't mean waiting for dial-up. I don't mean waiting at McDonald's. I don't mean waiting for the answer. I mean, like, when you're in a season of waiting, we're in an uncomfortable place where we're literally out of control of our own lives, and yet those are some sweet seasons where God is going to teach us some things. So Psalm 62:1 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Why is waiting so difficult? Because it feels as if we're doing nothing, and that's the point. You're not, but God is. What you're actually doing in that season is one of the greatest things that a Christian can do. They are doing nothing except putting their trust in God, putting their hope in him, and expressing confidence that he is still on the throne. For some of you, part of the reason why waiting is so hard is because you want to be in such control of your life. You want to know the answer. You want to know what's going on. You want to know, what's the point of this? How come this is happening? Why is my life not like I want? And the answer is, is because there's somebody else who sits on the throne of heaven, brother, and it ain't you. Or sister, just seeing this, ladies too, okay, so. Verse 28 to 30, there's an increasing severity Actually, let me go back to verse 27. I don't, want to, I don't want to miss this. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So listen to me. If you're under the age of 30 and God's put you in a season where you have to learn to wait, I mean, like God's leveled you with some suffering, you ought to be thankful. Because you got the rest of your life now to know how to live out brokenness. If God leveled you as a teenager, he put things in your life, you look at your life you're like how in the world, like that's way too heavy for a teenager, you, you see the world differently and there is a level of compassion and sensitivity, you have learned what it means to bear the yoke when you're young and the Bible says it is good, not good in the sense like oh this was happy, but good in the sense like I see God differently today. Verse 28, let him sit alone in silence. Verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust, and yet there may be hope. Verse 30, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let it be, let him be filled with insults. So the idea is he's waiting either for vindication in verse 30, he's waiting as he's in a position of repentance and brokenness in verse 29, or he's waiting as he's just sitting there wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? And so some of you are in a position of waiting today. I just want to remind you, waiting is not a waste if you'll simply release your control of your life and say, God, I don't know what you're doing or why, but I'm going to trust that you're God and I'm not. Number three. Third truth is this. The final word has not yet been spoken. Verse 31 for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The third truth is that this isn't over yet. Part of the grief of suffering and part of the challenge of judgment is the fear that it will never end or that it has no purpose. And that is why the Bible is so explicitly clear about the judgment or suffering that comes, that it is not the final word. And so this verse tells us that all suffering has a purpose and is not without limits. Though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. It means that for the believer, everything is working out in accordance with God's loving plan for your life. In the midst of some really, really dark moments in our family's life, I memorized and have recited this poem so many times. He is not poor or much enticed who loses everything but Christ. And it won't be long until the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. This is not over. The final word has not been spoken. And then the final truth is this God is always good. Verse 33 For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. This text tells us that in the midst of all of the destruction, in the midst of all of the hardship, in the midst of the leveling of the city of Jerusalem and the temple, that all of those actions do not come from a heart that enjoys the hardship leveled upon his people. God is not in heaven delighting in the tears of his children. He's doing so, however, because there are loving ends There is a kind purpose behind the hardship. You just can't see what it is yet. You just don't know the whole story. And maybe in your lifetime, you'll be able to look back and go, oh, that's what he was doing. Maybe. And I suspect when we get to glory and we're able to see the whole plan, then we'll know and we'll spend all of eternity saying, wow, and thanks for not telling me. (laughs) because it would have blown my mind in that moment. God cannot allow Israel to continue in her rebellion. He loves them. He has to stop them. And in order to stop them, he has to destroy them, at least for now. He has to peel back the layers of their hearts so they can see who they really are. But the ultimate aim of God flows from a gracious and loving heart. He wants the best for his children and that's why he's leveled the city of Jerusalem. My question, can you trust his heart when he levels you in some area? Or is it so important that your little city and kingdom is built that when God levels it, you spend all your time mourning the leveling of the city? You level my city! And God has a kingdom that he wants to give you. God intends to save his people But before that happens, he needs to have their hearts ready to listen to him again. And pain has an amazing ability to peel back the calluses of a hardened and deceitful heart. So rest assured that if you're a follower of Jesus, everything in your life somehow or in some way is a part of God's good purposes for you. He's not enjoying your struggle but somehow, way, it's producing something in you that fits with God's good heart toward you. So where does hope come from? Hope comes, hope springs from truth being rehearsed. So has, has suffering gotten the better of you this week? Has hardship or judgment begun to cloud your vision of who God is? Have you spent the last week listening and rehearsing the wrong narrative in your head or in your heart? Can you, this morning, just make one pivot, one turn from these hard circumstances and, again, rehearse these things? Some of you know them to be true. You could, you could rehearse these exact same truths to me, but over the last week, your, your heart has leaked in this arena, Can you preach to your own heart this morning and remind your soul what is real and what is true and what is right? Can you remind your soul? Can you even preach to your heart? Grab your heart and say to it, God's mercy never ends. Say to it, waiting is not a waste. Tell your heart, the final word has not been spoken. Tell your soul, despite what I see, despite what I feel, God is good. And tell yourself that, and then go to bed tonight, exhausted and weary, and wake up and do it again. And do it another day, and go to bed weary and exhausted, and wake up and do it again, and do it again, and do it again, and God will give you new mercy, and new mercy, and new mercy, and new mercy. And then when you fall on your face in your deathbed, you'll wake up with Jesus. There'll be no more struggle, no more pain. And at the end of the day, you'll see the whole plan and you will bask at the beauty of what God has done in your life all throughout your lifetime that you never even knew. <laughs> the steadfast love, oh church, of the Lord never ceases. Do you believe that? His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your Faithfulness, hope springs from this truth that we rehearse over and over and over. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to take these verses in Lamentations 3 and bring hope back, I pray, to some hearts of people who've come today weary and worn out. For others, Lord, take these truths and store them in their soul for the day that they will need them. And for those who today have yet not made a decision for Christ, Thank you for hard circumstances that serves to awaken their heart to what life and eternity is all about. And would you today, this very moment, save them as they place their faith, their hope, their trust in Christ. So Lord, thank you that in the midst of all circumstances you can be trusted. Make us a people who rehearse the truth of your word so hope in return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.